0: You know that saying, no man is an island. None of us can do it alone. We all need help, wise counsel, uh, a bit of muscle from time to time. The question is, who or what do you turn to to get that help when you need it? See, when it comes to getting help, sometimes we do the craziest things. Hi, I'm Bernie Diamond. Thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works, as today we come to the final message in this series called God's Very Best for You. We're going to be taking a look at that very thing. His very best for you. There used to be a game show on television called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire?, where they asked you a whole bunch of questions, and if you got them all right, you would end up winning a million dollars. Well, not surprisingly, not all that many people won the million. They even made a great movie set in India around this show called Slumdog Millionaire. Anyhow, one of the rules of the game was that you had three lifelines when you ran into a difficult question. You could ask the audience... You could do a 50-50 where the computer removed two wrong answers out of the four multiple-choice items. Or you could phone a friend. It was a fun show, and certainly the movie Slumdog Millionaire was just brilliant. The phone a friend always intrigued me. The contestant would run into a difficult question and choose to phone a friend. That would give them a 30-second call with a friend of their choosing. Sometimes the friend was able to help with the question, other times not. I wonder when you run into a difficult question in life, where do you turn? What option do you take? Ask the audience, 50-50, or phone a friend? It seems that often what we do is we try to build ourselves an insurance policy in life to provide a safety net for those difficult times. Some people try and get a financial buffer by earning lots of money. Some people try to build a social relationship safety net so that they have friends and family in place when the difficult times hit. That's not a bad thing. Other people invest in their career and their reputation as though that somehow is going to make a difference when the tempest hits. Whatever your safety net is, it's something that you've had to work hard to build. It's been an investment. Now, there's nothing wrong with a bit of sound planning. It's good to have a network of family and friends. It's good, if you can, to have some savings to fall back on. And if there's still such a thing, a secure job and a career path, nothing wrong with any of those things until we put all our trust in them as though they're going to be able to save us when a tsunami sweeps across our lives. Over the last few weeks on the program, we've been talking about idolatry. My favourite definition of an idol is anything that we place above God in our lives. We have an innate desire to worship something. That's how we've been made. And the crazy thing is that often we worship the wrong things. And in so doing, we miss out on the very best that God has ready and waiting for us, that God has ready and waiting for you. Idols are always imposters. Idols can never deliver what we hope they can deliver. In a sense, we know that and yet we still put our trust in them over and above God. This idolatry seemingly comes so naturally to us. So in your life, what are the safety nets that you've been investing in and building? What are the human safety nets that you put your trust in? One of the things that we can so easily do is to work hard and save hard for a home of our own. And when we finally get that, we start behaving as though this home is a forever thing that it's safe and permanent and viable. I happen to own a small apartment only several hundred metres from the ocean. We literally live at sea level. And as safe and as secure as this home feels, hey, should a tsunami hit, we're done for. Why is it that we behave as though the things of this world have the power to withstand the tsunamis of life? When we do that... It's called idolatry because we end up worshipping those things with our lives. We end up placing our trust in them. And when you stand back from that behaviour and you evaluate it objectively, it's just nuts. And not surprisingly, that's exactly what God says in his word. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 to 20. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. And so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or a cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans too are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line and marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then he can use it as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes some bread. Then he makes a god and worships it and makes it a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over that half he roasts meat and eats it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I can feel the fire. But with the rest of it, he, he turns into a god. his idol and bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me for you, are oh my god. They don't know. They don't comprehend. Their eyes are shut. So they can't see, and their minds as well, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and I've eaten. Now shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on the ashes, a deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? (laughs) Isn't that great? There was Isaiah talking about physical idols, statues. But they're no different to the idols we set up in our lives today, the physical things that we build to worship and place our trust in. I love how he unmasks the stupidity of idols, cutting down the tree. With one half you make a fire to cook your dinner, and with the other half you make a god. That's exactly what we do with the physical things that we turn into idols. One half of them we consume and enjoy like money or a nice house or friends or our careers, whatever it is that we've set up above God in our lives. And with the other half, we sacrifice to it and we trust in it as though somehow it has the power to save us like some God. Even our relationships, good as many of them are. Have you ever been in a difficult spot and used the phone a friend option and found there's nothing that your friend can say or do to help you? Of course you have. Have you ever asked the audience, gone out there for help, and found that there was no help that could withstand the tsunami? Of course you have. Right at the end of that passage we just read from Isaiah, the prophet leads us to the right question to ask, the question we should be asking of the idols in our lives. Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? And the right answer to that question, the only answer to that question, is, of course it is, dummy. When earthquakes and tsunamis hit your life, who's going to save you? When you come to that final barrier in this life, your physical death and you're staring down the barrel of eternity, let me ask you, who can save you? Do you see how ridiculous it is for us to set up idols in our lives and to worship them and to sacrifice our lives to them and to put our trust in them? The more we invest in them, the more we trust them, the more deluded we become, imagining that they have the power to save us. They don't have that power. Listen to me. Idols are frauds. They're impostors, and at the very best, they're nothing but second best. When something or someone who you trust leaves you in the lurch, when your life is crashing down around you, that sense of betrayal and disappointment actually makes things worse. That's what idols do. However attractive or reliable or secure they may appear. However much you have sacrificed your life to them, they are nothing but a fraud. And that is the God-honest truth. One of the enduring memories of my childhood is being bored absolutely to tears at church on Sunday mornings. I was an inquisitive, energetic lad, as you might imagine, precocious, always on the move, always asking questions, always trying to explore my little world and get the most out of it. Since I was old enough not to sleep in a cot, my mother tells me, I would be up at four o'clock in the morning, roaming the house, raiding the biscuit barrel and generally getting on with my life. Aren't you glad you weren't one of my parents, eh? And in fact, over half a century later... I was up the other morning preparing this program about 3.30am. It was a Saturday morning, but I was awake and I was up and I was ready to go and it just seemed the obvious thing for me to do. Anyhow, I digress. Back to church as a young lad. The things I remember most about church are the terrible droning sound of the minister's voice, the boredom and the frustration at not being able to get out there and, and get on with my life and how incredibly hard those wooden pews were on my backside. I was one of those kids who stand up on the pew, facing the people behind me and, and making faces at them, trying to make them laugh. Oh man, I pity my poor parents. I remember getting more than just the odd hiding from my father after church. It wasn't just the pews that gave me a sore backside. But can I tell you, as adults, this remains the experience of many people's Christianity. A Sunday ritual that for some reason they feel obligated to live out week after week. A droning minister, a sense of duty and boredom, and mixed in all together. And it's no wonder that so many of God's people set up idols in this world that they worship above God because their experience of Him simply isn't anything to write home about. Over the last few weeks on the program, we've been talking about how easily we fall into idolatry and exactly how that damages our lives. All those things of this world that appear to be so attractive, so reliable, so trustworthy, that we invest in them and put our trust in them above and before God and yet they always fail. They, they never deliver. Nothing in this world can ever deliver what we're looking for. And that's why grabbing a hold of God's very best for you is so important. So so what is God's very best for you? What, what does that look like? Well, here it is. Just, just sit back and soak it in. I'm reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they compelled this man... To carry Jesus Christ. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine and drink and mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right. And one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it again in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants to, for he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, the man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge and, and filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 to 50. There it is. God's very best for you, Jesus. This Jesus who came into this world to show you exactly what God's like this Jesus who suffered so terribly to take the punishment that you and I so richly deserve so that we can have a real, intimate, dynamic, powerful, tender, lifelong, eternity-long relationship with God. That's the whole purpose of everything that Jesus did for you and for me, to open up the door to that tender, intimate relationship with him. God's cry from the beginning of the Bible to the end is his desire to be our God, and for us to be his people. He wants to dwell in our midst, and for us to be with him, and to behold his glory, and to enjoy his presence, and to worship him in a way that is completely divine. Right towards the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, God repeats his cry, a cry that we hear over and over again through scripture. But this time it is the fulfillment of his deepest desire. It is our glimpse of, into the future to see how all this ends. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's God's very best for you. Eternity with him through Jesus his Son. And that's not something that begins when you die. It's something that begins, is meant to begin, was always ordained to begin the moment you believe in Jesus Why do so many of God's people try to find solace in the things of this world when God's very best, God himself, is ready and waiting now? Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the Roman church, chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God isn't about the things of this world. Sure, God's blessed us with those things, but the things of this world are temporal. They're here today and gone tomorrow. I hope that my wife and I grow old and dotty together. Really, I do. But either she or I could get run over by a bus tomorrow. Nothing on this earth is forever. And when I'm traveling and we're apart as much as we can chat to each other through the wonders of the internet today, she's not there with me. But God is. Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is. God never departs. And as things turn out, he is the only one that can ever give me his righteousness knowing that I'm forgiven, knowing that I'm washed clean from my sin, knowing that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me through Jesus. He's the only one who can give me the peace that I need amidst the busyness and the pressure and the turmoil and the demands of life, and he is the only one who can fill me with a joy unspeakable, irrespective of what's going on around me. And he does that by pouring his Holy Spirit into me, into you, into anyone who puts their trust, their faith, their complete life in Jesus. Righteousness, peace, and joy granted to us because of Jesus delivered to us through the Holy Spirit. There, right there, is God's very best. And nothing in this world, no idol, no possession, no relationship, no position, no recognition, no amount of money, even comes close. in 604 BC, a Chinese philosopher by the name of Lao Tzu observed that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. In fact, nothing that we ever plan on doing happens unless and until we take that first step. And that's why I asked you that rather awkward question just before. What are you going to do about it? If you've been able to join me over these last few weeks, you've probably figured out for yourself that there really are some idols in your life, something or someone that you're putting ahead of God, something or someone that you're putting all your trust in to the exclusion of God. The problem with letting go of your idol is, well, it's a bit like being a chocoholic and giving up chocolate. You just want one more piece, right? The thing with idols is that although they don't in and of themselves have any innate power... The fact that you've invested so much in them, the fact that you've put your trust in them, means that they have their tendrils wrapped around your heart. And letting go isn't easy. Letting go, in fact, to start with, can be quite painful. But unless and until you take that first step, nothing's going to change. You'll keep on settling for second best and missing out on God's very best. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. As hard as it is to let go of your idols, God has all the power that you need to make it happen. He can break their hold over you in an instant, or he might choose to do that over the coming days, weeks, and months. He knows what's best for you. The first step is deciding that you're going to make change here and now, that you're going to do what the Bible tells you to do, which is this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are you prepared to do that right now, to lay down your idols at God's feet and give them up for him? Well, if you are, then it's time for the second step, and that second step is to lay hold of the only power in the universe that can set you free, God's word. God's word says that for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. In other words, you have already been set free by Christ. So right now, I want to pray that freedom over you. Are you ready? Father God, your word says that in Christ, we're already free. Free from the slavery to sin. Free from the power of idols that we've set up in our lives. So today we're going to claim your word for ourselves, for our lives. We're going to step out in faith, away from our idols and towards you, believing that Jesus has already set us free. Lord, I pray your power on every person listening today whose heart is to be free from idolatry and completely surrender to you. Pour your Holy Spirit upon them, that person right now in great power, in a double portion, and do what only you can do. Make the freedom that Christ has purchased for us a reality in their lives right now, right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm believing that if you prayed that prayer with me, God has done precisely what we asked him to do. I know that over the coming days and weeks, God is going to make things happen in your life to make his freedom a reality for you. As your idol is torn away from your heart by the very power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, God will replace it with his very best for you, his righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit. And that right there will bring healing to you and open the door to an amazing future of God's very best for you.
1: You've been listening to Christianity Works with Bernie Dimatt. Before we go, there's something truly important that I need to share with you. This podcast is only made possible through the prayer and support of friends like you. Each week, millions of people hear about Jesus through Christianity Works radio and television broadcasts and through podcasts just like this one. Your generous gift of support today will help take the gospel of Jesus Christ far and wide around the globe. Just stop by at ChristianityWorks.org and click the donate button. And when you do give, don't forget to request your free copy of this month's latest life application e-booklet. Thank you so much for your generous gift of support today. Again, that web address is ChristianityWorks.org. I'm Jennifer. We'll catch you again next time.